Hey everyone, Steve Murins here. One thing that I've been asked a few times is to post a more substantive introduction to explain what we will be discussing during this podcast. So here goes. Our guest this week is Raj Sharma, a Calgary immigration lawyer who practices in just about every area of immigration law. As far as I know, Raj is the only immigration lawyer, or lawyer period, to have sued the government of Canada on behalf of a Canadian citizen who is trying to compel the Canada Border Services Agency to investigate a marriage fraud. That's our topic this week. Canadian immigration law provides that Canadian citizens and permanent residents can sponsor spouses or common law partners to immigrate to Canada. One of the requirements is that the marriage be genuine and that it not have been entered into for the primary purpose of immigration. Uh, during this podcast, we discuss many aspects of this bona fide marriage requirement, including changes that the previous Conservative Government of Canada introduced uh, to combat marriage fraud. Uh, we also discuss Raj's uh, recent case, Zagbib v. Canada, uh, public safety and emergency preparedness. And this case went all the way to the Federal Court of Appeal. This is the case that I was talking about before, where Raj sued the Canadian government to try to force the Canada Border Services Agency to conclude an investigation into marriage fraud. Uh, the neutral citation for that case is 2016 FCA 182. Neutral citation for those who aren't lawyers is a way of looking up uh, court cases. After discussing marriage fraud, we switch gears and talk about how the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, the current one, Ralph Goodale, has uh, said that he may be open to changing how Canada detains people for immigration purposes. We talk about what those changes may be. Uh, once again, my name is Stephen Murins. I can be reached at stephenmurins at larley.com. S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot com. Peter Edelman is the co-creator of this podcast. He can be reached at Peter at Edelman dot C-A, P-E-T-E-R at E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N dot C-A. And Raj can be reached at Raj at S-S-H-Law dot C-A status. The plan is designed to target those who dupe Canadians into marrying them as a ticket to get into the country. But could people who enter a marriage legitimately get caught in the net? And will the new rules be uh, enough to protect Canadians from marriage fraud? Joining me now is the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, Jason Kenney. Thanks so much for joining us Good today. to be here. Appreciate your time. Now, how important is it that these new regulations on marriage fraud are put in place? Very important. Uh, too many Canadians are victimized by foreigners who they marry, who arrive in Canada, get stamped in as permanent residents, and then take off right away. There was a case that CBC just ran in Vancouver about an 82-year-old man who married a, uh, a lady from uh, Russia, and the day she got her permanent residency, she took off. So today I met a, a lady uh, fr who was originally from India, a paraplegic with cerebral palsy. She, she got, she, her husband came into Canada. He didn't even contact her. So the new two-year conditional rule that we promised in the campaign will help us to weed out a lot of the bad apples that come in through fraudulent immigration marriages and to shut down a lot of the commercial marriage transactions where Canadians, Canadians frankly, uh, take a payment from someone from abroad in order to give them a fake spousal sponsorship How big application. How problem is that? It's very big. Um
Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of immigration and citizenship law and policy. I'm Stephen Murens. I'm uh, Peter Edelman. Uh, we're here with uh, Raj Sharma, one of our colleagues from uh, Calgary. We've known uh, Raj for both Steve and I have known Raj for several years. Uh, they've uh, do doing a lot of uh, interesting work in Calgary. We're uh, hoping to talk today a little bit about uh, marriage fraud and, uh, in particular, a case that Raj uh, j- recently um, took up through the uh, federal court of appeal on that issue. But I think there are a number of issues we'd like to talk about. Uh, so, how are things in Calgary these days, uh, given the uh, shift in the economy and the price of oil? That's a Things are good, uh, uh, Peter. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, Vancouver is always great to come out to. I've got uh, my little place out here. I guess some people have like I guess cottages or cabins, so I've got my little uh, space out here. And uh, wish I could be here more because uh, my wife and I truly love uh, the city. Um, Calgary's fantastic. Well, I guess it's a relevant relative term. Uh, the oil and gas uh, has affected a lot of people. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities, I think, uh, as well. So we're 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 busier than we've ever been. It, you know, I don't think uh, economic downturns necessarily affect uh, immigration lawyers, at, at least those immigration lawyers that are not one-trick ponies. Um, so if you can do litigation and if you can do something other than a work permit, I think there's uh, still lots of work in Calgary. So marriage fraud in the immigration context. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know how big an issue it is in immigration and that it does exist. Um, Can you give some examples of, I guess, can you provide a brief overview of what immigration officials are looking for when they are assessing spousal sponsorship or common law partnership applications? Well, maybe we can just do a sort of uh, overview. Marriage fraud exists because there's this sort of massive... uh, uh, advantage to be gained. So when you have marriage fraud, you have individuals that want to come to Canada, but don't qualify to come to Canada. And one of the easiest ways of coming to Canada was simply marrying someone and being sponsored to Canada. Um, Sponsoring someone, uh, there's no income requirement. Sponsoring someone, there's no medical inadmissibility issues, for example. Um, There's no language requirement or education requirement. So marriage fraud has been with us for a long, long time. And just to be clear, it does exist. I know some people think the concept is completely made up or was made up by the previous government. I remember less than a year into practicing, a facilitator of marriage fraud came to my office saying that he was charging uh, permanent or he was charging foreign nationals between $40,000 to $60,000 to find a Canadian spouse and arranged a marriage of which the Canadian sponsor would get a cut. And we showed that person out of the office, but it was my first introduction to the fact that this actually is a real thing. It's a real thing, and it's actually more pronounced, uh, for example, in my community, in the Punjabi community, um, because what you have is you have arranged marriages. So you don't need to show uh, the origin and development of a relationship. You need to show someone's flight to India. You need to show someone's uh, first meeting and a marriage, and then a flight back out, and then a sponsorship. So. Uh, marriage fraud has been with us. It's uh, real. It's uh, thousands probably of cases. It's especially prevalent in certain communities, including my own, uh, because arranged marriage uh, lends itself very well to uh, marriage fraud. So when the government is assessing a marriage, uh, do you want to provide a brief overview as to what they're looking for? So for example, uh, let's say if somebody originally got into a marriage 
because they intended to immigrate to Canada, it's clear from documentation that, say, cash was exchanged for the marriage to facilitate immigration. But now, over time, that a marriage has evolved into a loving relationship. Is that person safe or will uh, the marriage fraud provisions in the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations catch them? Well, that, that intent in terms of, there's, of course, the Section 4 uh, regulation in the IRPR, Immigration Re uh, Refugee Protection Regulation. So, you know, there's a two-pronged sort of test. One is, is the relationship genuine, and that is not uh, locked in, so to speak, or doesn't crystallize. The intent uh, provision of that regulation does, in fact, crystallize and, and is locked in. So I've had that sort of weird situation because... You could have a genuine relationship, but you could still have a marriage that is uh, uh, not considered uh, or, or or is excluded from uh, from sponsorship uh, based on the intent of the applicant. Well, I think it's important just to point out to the to the listeners the change that happened with the regulation is that it used to be that uh, a to, 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 test, to, yeah. to demonstrate that there was a. Uh, a marriage fraud or that you you were ineligible on that basis if the marriage was not genuine and had been entered into for improper purposes. And what happened, uh, and I don't know the exact date, but relatively 2010. in the last few years, uh, that, oh, I guess it's been longer than I thought, uh, <laughs> six years ago, uh, that the and was changed to an or. And so with, that's where we have the, the effect that, that Raj is talking about and that, uh, that Steve is talking about, where you have a finding that a marriage was not, uh, was entered into for an improper purpose. Uh, or was in, entered into primarily for the purposes of immigration, and then even if the person then goes on to have, they go on to have four kids together, they go on to live together, uh, presumably you can never overcome that initial reality that the, the marriage was entered into primarily for the purpose of immigration, or that there's been that finding, and you can't undo that finding. And that's one of the big problems that we have with uh, the Immigration Appeal Division, finding that it has no jurisdiction to consider these cases. Uh, because they've already been decided, um, and and there's it's kind of difficult to argue against that with a disjunctive test. So sorry, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if that's, uh, um, but that 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 change um, has had some significant impact. I don't know if the two of you have noticed it at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been the reality for the last six years. I think there's considerable overlap between whether a marriage is genuine. Uh, because, look, let's face it, especially with arranged marriages, there's always some aspect uh, that the immigration status of the sponsor plays in that marriage. And, and again, when you're looking at arranged marriages, just go and open up an Indo-Canadian newspaper and start looking at the matrimonial there. It'll list the height and it'll list the sort of education and the complexion. Uh, but a lot, you know, and and whether the person's a doctor, a doctor is a big deal in my community. But uh, you know, obviously, immigration status in Canada is plays a role in uh, arranged marriages, particularly. Now, it just can't be primarily. So it, these are all, you know, it's these are all sort of interesting uh, issues. But you know, you got to get it right at least at the IAD because there's very little sort of hope for reprieve if uh, the Immigration Appeal Division finds. That the marriage is precluded. Yeah, and that's a whole separate issue is that if you do appeal and go to the Immigration Appeal Division and lose, then the legal principle of res judicata can almost prohibitively prevent the person from reapplying in the future for a spousal sponsorship application unless there's been a decisive change. Uh, just touching back on 
marriage fraud before we get to a further discussion on some of those, uh, I would say, the three main conservative changes to Canada's family class regime. Uh, Raj, you happen to have what I think might be the only case where a Canadian sponsor who was the victim of marriage fraud took the Canada Border Services Agency to court for not, well, why don't you explain it more? I don't know. I can't recall if it was not completing an investigation or not taking concrete steps to remove someone where the Canadian sponsor came forward and said that he had been the victim of marriage fraud. Right. So we all go to the federal court, all three of us, we, we all go to the federal court and we use, you know, that court to hold immigration officers' feet to the fire, so to speak. Most of the time when we go to the federal court, we use the remedy called certiorari, which is basically to, you know, set aside a decision and have it remitted back for redetermination by someone. There's another remedy that's uh, called mandamus, and mandamus is a prerogative writ. Mandamus is something that the courts can use to compel uh, the executive to comply with the uh, will of the legislature. So basically, it's a democratic accountability tool. Just imagine we have a bill. The bill says, um, you know, the CBSA, the police, or whatever agency has to do X. And let's say that agency says, well, meh, I, I don't feel like doing X today. Um, so mandamus is there, and, and we've used mandamus um, to compel, for example, years-long processing on citizenship applications. We've used mandamus on... Um, there's an application for permanent residency and there's some sort of nonsense excuse as to why it's not being processed. Um, and mandamus is a very, very flexible tool and helpful tool in immigration. Because how else do you get overview or redress? Because the CBSA, as we all know, doesn't have a lot of sort of internal review mechanisms. There's a lot of, uh, you know, darkness and lack of transparency. And so we go to the federal court for these various things. So. When these victims of marriage fraud came to me, um, I tried to wonder what can I do for them because all they can do or all we can do is draft up a fax to the CBSA inland enforcement manager, send it off with a, you know, a hope and a prayer that some officer will find it in his or her schedule to take a look at at it. And it's particularly egregious. Look, whenever a relationship falls apart, there's going to be two competing narratives. Um, we all know the cases where I sponsored this lady or, or this guy to Canada. We've been together for five or six years and the relationship's fallen apart. And I think he used me or used, <laughs> or she used me for immigration and now I want to get he, she deported. Uh, Tariq Zabib and these other cases were so egregious. Uh, Mr. Zabib's wife left him at the airport. They never spent more than four hours together in, uh, in Canada. And so, he had come to me and I, I, I was contemplating using mandamus on these sort of marriage fraud cases because I was seeing this and then specifically and particularly in my own community. And of course, there was a gentleman here uh, in Vancouver in the Lower Mainland who, who committed suicide uh, allegedly because of being the victim of marriage fraud. And so I thought, why not? I'll send the demand. They don't respond to me. Why don't I use mandamus or, you know, file an application for mandamus. And every time I did that, the and I perfected it, the application would simply be dismissed. And so lo and behold, Tariq Zagbib, we were trying out mandamus, we were trying out different arguments, trying to figure out how to meet the sort of seven-part precondition test of mandamus. Um, and lo and behold, we get leave on Mr. Zagbib's case. And 
the the next step that what what we saw was within 48 hours after that leave decision the cbsa um closes the investigation and so obviously i think any litigator any lawyer would be kind of outraged at the fact that okay you are going to prevent or stymie the jurisdiction of the federal court simply by closing an investigation instead of doing your job and so when you say close the investigation you don't mean that they decided to commence investig or removal proceedings or to follow through with a possible referral to the immigration and refugee board they said this investigation's over we're not proceeding any further Correct. once you got the mandamus order from court once i got the leave or yeah. once you got the leave yeah. and and so at that point uh, i was like okay well we have an affidavit now from the cbsa manager and i then decided to cross-examine uh, the manager um, and of course reached out to peter because you know, I, I'm not aware of anyone else in Calgary that's actually cross-examined uh, the inland enforcement manager. So I reached out to Peter, who has done this before, and uh, and ended up uh, examining him in in my boardroom. And when were the notes? The notes because they closed it with some notes that said that they there wasn't uh, there wasn't a case, etc. Did, did those get written after your, oh, it was, your after leave, or were they written? Were they already on the file? It before? was terrible. And so what had happened is once we got leave, obviously we get the CTR, the Certified Tribunal Record. So the Certified Tribunal Record comes in, um, and the Certified Tribunal Record indicates that uh, you know my guy, my client, went to CBSA right away to report this uh, fraud. His employer assisted him in communicating with. Uh, uh, with the authorities, and uh, a file was actually opened by CBSA within days of him reporting being a victim of marriage fraud. Uh, a police, a Calgary police a service uh, officer attended at my client's uh, home, talked to him, and a CPS officer contacted CBSA and said, this is my name. My name is Constable Yanko. This is my badge number. This is my telephone number. This is my cell phone number. This is my email address, and these are my shifts. I need to talk to you about Mr. Zigbee because I believe that he is a victim of a marriage conveyancing scheme. Those are the words that Constable Yanko used. And so file was open and it was open for more than, I think, two years. And so as soon as we file for, we go to federal court, uh, what we saw from the CTR is that there was a, a dated letter, a signed dated letter of two days after um, leave and it indicated that the manager decided to close the file. And, and so obviously the effect of that and why that's significant is that if I asked them for a decision and they decided it, then my mandamus application is moot. And so at that point, that's when we cross-examined um, the, uh, the manager. Now, you know, this, is, uh, this should be a warning to both of you guys. Um, <laughs> You know, experience is a great teacher. So I'm blogging about this, and so the manager comes in to uh, to be examined, and says, you know, right before the examination, oh, sorry, I need to amend my affidavit. The uh, the file was actually closed before leave, and uh, that I he doesn't know how the letter was dated after leave, and that was an error. Um, and so, you know, I'd asked him later on, and he's like, yeah, he learned of it when he, you know, perused my, my blog. So <laughs> probably not a great idea um, to put that much information on the blog, uh, particularly before a cross-examination. But I don't know how you can actually fix that type of, because it doesn't, it doesn't, that answer doesn't get any better because that, that actually came up at the Federal Court of Appeal. And, and they said, well, what was his explanation? as to the discrepancy in date. And, and the DOJ counsel said in open court, well, 
there is no explanation. And so, you know, I, I don't know if I actually harmed anything there, but, um, but still a very, very interesting sort of case. I recently had a border services officer under cross-examination in a criminal matter uh, give an explanation as to why he didn't know about the contents of a memo with a signature under his name. And it was because there's a practice apparently at that border at that border office of other people to sign for each other. How convenient. So, so somebody else signed yeah. under his name yeah. on this. Uh, and I was like, yeah, that doesn't make things better. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so you, you went to the uh, you went to the federal court. So the federal court dismissed the appeal, and then you but they did certify a question. Yeah, and you went up to the to the federal court of appeal, and ultimately both courts said we're not going to touch this. No, for different and, reasons. Yeah. And so do you want to just briefly talk about why why is it that the that the courts don't want to go there in terms of saying. Uh, of telling CBSA that they have to do something about this. Well, look, the courts are inherently reluctant when it comes to mandamus, and there's a reason for that. The courts are okay with saying, well, your decision is wrong. Your decision cannot be justified. Your your decision is um, is going to be set aside, and someone else is going to decide for this. Mandamus is, you're asking the court for a, a sort of different uh, supervisory function. Mandamus means you're going to say to them, um, and it's getting awfully close to the court telling uh, an administrative agency how to do their job. And that is not really the function of a court given our sort of rule of law system, our separation of power system. And so there's this concept called justiciability. And I never want to really talk about this word because I heard it uh, far too often. But justiciability means that this is not a function for the courts. This is a function for the legislators. This is a function for um, someone else. And, and the courts shouldn't be sticking their nose here. And so Justice Manson at the federal court says, well, it's not justiciable. But he doesn't justify why it's not justiciable. I mean, if this is not justiciable, which is the federal court having the jurisdiction to tell someone to do their duty or not do their duty, then I don't know what um, is. And so justiciability, again, this is a concept that has been expanded uh, over the last few decades. So most things are actually justiciable. Um, and the other thing that Justice Manson kind of pointed out and, and here was the interesting point. Mandamus and certiorari are typically available only by, by the person who is directly affected by, um, by the administrative uh, action. And so one argument that the DOJ was using over and over again was that if there is a public duty, it's not owed to Mr. Zigbee, who's a third party to all of this. It's owed to the you know, attorney general. And they, they named a couple of police cases to that effect as well. Um, and so when we went to the federal, and so oddly enough at the federal court, and I tried at the federal court to get Justice Manson to maybe craft a different type of remedy because I understood the limitations of mandamus and I just needed some sort of recourse or redress for my client. Um, and so the DOJ proposed a certified question. I did not propose the certified question. The certified question was, can a third party compel uh, or can a sponsor compel uh, CBSA to investigate um, an individual from marriage fraud. And what was the and, answer? Well, it was certified, and then it goes to the Federal Court of Appeal, and again, I reached out to uh, Peter, and um, the panel was uh, Justice uh, Peltier, Nier, and uh, Boyvan, and a very interesting experience. What I was really interested in 
and concerned about was that I didn't want mandamus to be closed off as a sort of I didn't want to limit the reach of mandamus, and that's what I saw Justice Manson's decision as doing. And so I was very concerned about that, and I wanted mandamus to remain as a, a sort of flexible tool for other lawyers and, and other circumstances. And so um, I was happy that the Federal Court of Appeal said, well, Justice Manson misunderstood justiciability, that the jurisdiction of the court doesn't arise, for example, from Section 72 of the Act, but it arises from, from Section 18.1 of the Federal Courts Act. And that was important. Um, and the Federal Court of Appeal also pointed out that a sponsor was affected, for example, because a sponsor was a party to this sort of sponsorship agreement and undertaking um, that, the, that the duty also was there or, or lied from the CBSA to the sponsor, for example. What they said, in essence, is, is they took the sort of easy way out, which is they said, well, it's moved. You asked for a decision. And the decision was made. And and by the way, in the decision, I was gratified to see that you know they kind of shared my concerns at, at, as to the timing of closing this investigation on or near the or after leave was granted. Um, and so they just said, "You asked for a decision. Decision was made. We share your concerns. But now mandamus doesn't lie here. You've got to go for certiorari." And um, so on the main, I'm I'm happy with the Federal Court of Appeal decision. Uh, I'm happy that uh, mandamus is uh, still with us, and I'm happy that it remains a tool for democratic accountability when it comes to the CBSA, because, uh, frankly, there is no other uh, review mechanism. So if somebody thinks that they've been the victim of marriage fraud, and they've listened to this and they're thinking, okay, well, if I'm gonna, if I, if I want to compel CBSA to investigate the marriage, I'm all of a sudden going to have to hear about mandamus and just disability, what would you tell someone who thinks that they've been the victim of marriage fraud and they go to you and say, uh, Mr. Sharma, is there anything that we can do to, I've been the victim of marriage fraud, I'm on the hook for this undertaking, is there anything that we can do? Well, you know, I, I've dissuaded individuals that have come to me because, and I've tried my best to dissuade them. Um, they, it's an issue of justice, and so it, and it becomes an issue of principle, so it's hard to some to dissuade individuals, I've had an individual, I'll, you know, I'll nameless, of course, and and I asked, I asked them frankly, I'm like, how much money do you make? And and the person's like, I make thirteen dollars an hour. I'm like, you can't afford um, this because this is this sort of novel area, and I don't think I can get you justice. And and the response was, Mr. Sharma, I will eat craft dinner every day. Um, to pay you whatever, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. And, and you know, your heart goes up to them. And so I think we all became lawyers, you know, not necessarily for the money. I think we became lawyers to help people. And so it's very, very difficult when you've got injustice and you can't craft an appropriate remedy. Um, Zagbib is there. It is now, of course, possible. I would do it only in the clearest cases. Um, I would suggest it only in the clearest cases. Um, you know, where there's clear evidence of no cohabitation. I think that even if there's cohabitation for a month or two, I don't think uh, mandamus, I don't know what the workload is for CBSA officers, but uh, they push this pretty hard. And, and you know, the, the ironic or the odd thing about this was that Jason Kenney was going up and down the country talking about marriage fraud. And he was talking about marriage fraud because he, kn he knows that that played well to certain communities, yeah. certain vote bank communities, I should say. 
And he made it out to be that this is an absolute priority, that he made it out to be that the CBS is cracking down on marriage fraud. And, and the reality turns out to be completely different. The reality turns out to be, and again, the manager at the CBSA, the Inland Enforcement Manager, has my sympathies. He's got the same number of officers. Um, and he's got Jason Kenney saying, well, there's got to be a thousand cessate applications per year. He's got Jason Kenney saying, well, marriage fraud is, is a priority, but he doesn't have any more officers and he doesn't have any more resources. And so, um, the reality, unfortunately, is is harsh. Um, so what I would say is prevention is the best cure. So before you marry someone and sponsor them to Canada, I would suggest that you really get to know them. But I guess my, my question, I mean, and I was always, uh, you know, we had these discussions before you were bringing this forward. And from a criminal law perspective, it's always I've always been a bit skeptical of, of the direction that this was going in. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the broader policy implications of what you were hoping to see happen in terms of uh, being able to force CBSA officers to investigate certain things or to consider certain investigations. And to give you an example, um, you know, I've, I, my office is in the pot block. Uh, we're next to, to Mark Emery's uh, cafe. Every day, there are hundreds of transactions that happen in the immediate vicinity. The Vancouver police doesn't do anything about it, doesn't investigate. And th there's a reason for that. And there's, there's a policy, a general policy with respect to marijuana in this city and, and the approach that's taken. But if I could litigate every single one of those and say, you're not investigating, you're not investigating, you're not investigating, and the police would turn around and say, well, We've chosen to investigate other things. We focus our, our energy on heroin and cocaine and, and uh, assault, domestic assault and whatever the, the situation might be. And I guess my, my question is in the immigration context, I can think of all kinds of contexts that don't get investigated. Just to take the example of when George Bush visited here and there, were, there was a lot of uproar around whether or not he was a war criminal and whether or not he should have been found inadmissible. Do those things all become then... Uh, you know, do I go and get mandamus from the federal court and say the minister has to consider whether George Bush is a war criminal and uh, before he's allowed to come and talk here? And should, you know, Donald Trump be allowed in because there's allegations of fraud overseas or whatever the situation might be? And that could be on both sides of the spectrum, right? We saw, uh, you know, with the, the British MP, the, the same situation, right? The, the left, uh, left wing, I forget his name uh, offhand. George Galloway. George Galloway. So what's, I'm just wondering from a policy perspective, what is it that you were hoping to achieve or what is it that you would, what is it that you would see in terms of people being able to push CBSA into investigations, um, especially when you're, you're doing it from, and, and what you framed it as in part on your client's, uh, part was that he had a public interest in this. Right. And so, um, which means that anybody, I would have a public interest in a war criminal not visiting. Right. And so I think our rule of law system um, needs public interest litigants. And so public interest standing. And so when you look at the sort of preconditions of mandamus and you wonder why are these preconditions here, i.e. the duty has to be owed to the applicant and it's got to be a public legal duty. Basically what that is is a codification or ossification of standing. Now, standing as an administrative law principle um, was very rigid and sclerotic many, many years ago, many, many decades ago. Now, standing has uh, evolved and it's expanding so that many people can bring the types of actions that you kind of alluded to. So, but mandamus, of course, was not. I mean, they codified standing. 
And so, you know, mandamus is this sort of like this sort of, uh, you know, frozen caveman in terms of productive writs. And on the other hand, everything else outside of it has been uh, expanding. So standing has, ex uh, has expanded. And, and I guess my answer to your question is this, is that, yes, in our rule of law system, we can go to the courts and the courts will determine. I'm not a fan. We're all lawyers. I'm, I, we're, we shouldn't be fans of fallacies, right? And so the slippery slope argument was something that the DOJ raised as well. And so, yes, we can go to the courts in these sort of, and you fit, if you fit the general sort of criteria, you can go to the courts and the courts will determine uh, whether you have standing and a direct interest and whether the court's intervention is required or not. In this particular case, I'm not asking and I did not ask for the CBSA to do a particular specific thing. What I asked them simply to do was to um, turn their minds in terms of an investigation, i.e. opening a file is not an investigation. And, and so what I asked them to do, and we went through it, and for example, it was really helpful because during that cross-examination, we saw that the manager closed this file without regard to ENF5, without regard to the manual that actually tells a, a CBSA officer when and when not to write a report. And what that threshold is for the, writing that report, because this manager thought that the threshold was uh, on a balance of probabilities. And, 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 and so he didn't understand that writing report was based on the fact that if he, if he had reasonable grounds or he had reasons to believe. And so, you know, these are useful exercises to ensure that there is transparency and sunlight is always the best disinfectant. But in this case, I wasn't asking, I didn't ask them to write or I didn't say, I want mandamus to compel this manager to write a section 44 report. I said, Given these facts, they, um, there is an obligation on the CBSA to investigate in these specific uh, circumstances. Of course, CBSA, of course, the police can prioritize their resources. I think also something that would distinguish at least a sponsor trying to get the Canada Border Services Agency to enforce the act as opposed to, say, a person body. who's yeah. just upset that yeah. there's a the Amsterdam Cafe exists is the ongoing obligations on the sponsor. That sponsor has an undertaking in place that depending in a marriage case is three years. During that time, if the foreign national who was in the fake marriage goes on social assistance, that sponsor has to pay the provincial government back as well during the period of that undertaking. Um, they can't sponsor anyone else. So I think I'm not sure where the line in general should be drawn in public interest standing, right. but I think in the immediate spousal sponsorship possible First, yeah. victim of marriage fraud for, case. For spousal sponsorship, we fit that sort yeah. of narrow criteria for mandamus. This is not a busybody neighbor saying, well, I've got this uh, lady with an accent in my street and I, you know, I think she came here on a fake marriage. So, yeah. So just Although that, by the time you got to, uh, sorry, oh, no, okay. I just got quickly, I just, the, by the time you got to the court, my understanding was the sponsorship uh, uh, obligation was finished. Well, and, you know, and, and, and that's the same the, thing. Like, I mean, you, the CBSA couldn't sort of hang their hat on their own laziness and running out the clock just to prevent me from uh, redress at the court. And so it doesn't lie well in their mouth to, but they tried that argument as well. But I did want to raise one other, just one quick example that I've, I've, we were recently approached by a company that says there's a company overseas stealing our IP. Guys here is a business visitor. Can you get him thrown out of the country? And... If you make a case for this IP theft, for example, 
can you force CBSA to then investigate? I mean, that's that's where right, so now, now, this is in the foreign worker context. Right, so also, where companies are aware of right, fake LMIAs and everything. So and now you're gonna there's, now, a, there's now, a business interest right. in forcing CBSA to investigate right. certain people so in now, a lot of re- in a now, lot of context. Now you're gonna make me say the word that I didn't want to say. Uh, I don't think that would be justiciable. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean this is that spectrum of where someone's interest lies. Now, just Justice Manson will be proud. <laughs> changing gears from the immediate case to the three reforms or changes to uh, marriage and common law applications that the previous government made. The first we already talked about was going from the conjunctive to the disjunctive test of whether an application is genuine and what is uh, whether a marriage is genuine and whether its primary purpose was immigration. The second and most controversial change was the decision to create conditional permanent residence, which is that uh, couples that have been, I think, married for less than three years or cohabiting for less than three years or two years at the time of application, uh, they permanent, the, the foreign national when they immigrate will be a conditional permanent resident for two years after they immigrate, subject to certain exceptions like the existence of children. During those two years, they have to cohabit. The other change was the five-year sponsorship bar. So if a permanent resident immigrates because they were sponsored by someone else, they can't apply to sponsor someone, a new spouse or common law partner for five years after they become a permanent resident. The minister has made, well, I think the minister is committed to, uh, through Prime Minister Trudeau's mandate letter to the minister, to ending conditional permanent residency. There hasn't been any discussion, to my knowledge, about the sponsorship bar or the disjunctive test. Do either of you have any comments or thoughts on making changes to either of those three Jason Kenny era reforms? Well, I think the five-year ban on on another sponsorship and that was done to sort of stop these sort of uh marriage fraud rings so and yeah, revolving doors is the term yeah I use. and and so what i've seen and i was involved in, a, in what appears to be now heading towards a criminal investigation but um, a number of individuals and we're looking at 20 plus sponsorships uh between all of them and so they sponsored people those people then went and sponsored other people and so you've got this almost logarithmic exponential type of uh, uh of occurrence and so the five-year ban put a stop to that uh, i think the two-year conditional pr on one side i welcomed it because I did see a lot of immigration fraud, particularly in my community, and and, and I met with a lot of uh, devastated sponsors and their family members. So on the one hand, I thought the conditional PR was a good thing. On the other hand, it is a clumsy sort of tool. Um, relationships do break down. They break down within two years, and and it, and it incentivized strange behavior. So I had my own radio show in, in, in Calgary on Red FM, and, and my co-host was a family law lawyer, and we saw many, many cases of EPOs, you know, you know, people that come to Canada in our, in our community, largely women, immediately come. Sorry, what's an EPO? Uh, emergency protection order, and just, you know, within weeks we have like calls to 911. Uh, we have uh, a flabbergasted, you know, husband or sponsor and his family members. We see, you know, women pulling out their hair or spraying their face with hairspray, and then telling the police that they've been beaten because they know that 
uh, abuse or physical abuse or was one exemption to the um, conditional PR requirement. So it incentivized this sort of strange behavior. I think pe people underestimate if you're willing to commit marriage fraud to come to Canada, you are then willing to, of course, make false allegations against the sponsor of abuse. and, and, and Yeah, I, uh, I met across someone once and it was a couple and they legitimately asked, we're no longer interested in the relationship. How hard does he have to hit me? And they were serious. They were going to go through it so that the abuse... And it was at that moment. I mean, I'd had concerns before, but I thought they did not realize that this is the extent that people would go. Yeah. Well, it, it creates a very... And we had talked about this last week with Deanna as well, is that it, it, it does create a very serious problem for the person in the relationship on both sides. And I have had couples who've come back to me afterwards saying, look, things aren't working out between us. But I don't want her to be deported. Well, I think, and, you know, I think honestly, realistically, very simple cure to this. If there's no complainant, there's no marriage fraud. Right. And I think that that's that would that would have been a kind of important sort of requirement, which is like, OK, if the marriage falls apart, but the sponsor has no issue. And under, you know, and so why why create these sort of the, but the test unless they received all that cash. Yeah, right. Look, marriage fraud is is either there's a complicity, uh, or there's a, or there's a victim. But I mean, the the tools are already there to yeah. deal with fraud, right? Well, so in terms of the misrepresentation, yeah. And when you talk about these marriage fraud rings, is we have the tools both on the criminal yeah. side and, and um, within the immigration within the Immigration Act to deal with uh, yeah. full on cases of fraud. Right. So when and, you're and we're not talking about we're not talking about like derivatives or securities fraud. We're not talking about anything complicated. This is very very straightforward. To write a Section 44 report, I think we could do that in less than five minutes. Although the challenge is proving that they had the fraudulent intention before they arrived in Canada, and that they didn't just or, get here, or at the time of, or at the time of landing, and that they didn't just get here and realize, oh my God, what what is my life like now? Who is this guy? Well, you know, look. It goes back to my sort of earlier point, prevention. We got to get visa officers in these hotspot countries like India and China and Vietnam um, to do a really good sort of job in terms of assessment. And whether that takes more training, whether that takes uh, more detailed processing, I'm not sure exactly. But we've got to prevent this before they come to Canada, because after they come to Canada, they have, of course, the rights, as any permanent residents do, to challenge the well-foundedness of a report at the Immigration Division, to appeal any removal order to the Immigration Appeal Division. Um, so, you know, again, I'll go back to preventing this. Uh, and again, go. let's go back to that sponsor. You know, and we can never prevent individuals that want to take 50 grand to do a fake marriage, because once there's complicity, uh, it's hard to sort of prevent that. But if you don't want to be a victim of marriage fraud, make sure you know this person that you are making this commitment to for the rest of your life or, you know, and, and so prevention. And so that, that onus, I think, should be on the sponsor. And I think that should be on that visa officer. I, I think one of the things that you've raised several times, though, and, and you talk about it in the context of the Asian community, but I think one of the big challenges for an immigration system like Canada's, when you're dealing with a vast number of different cultures and countries and practices, for something as fundamental as marriage that's practiced very, very differently across throughout the world, everything from arranged marriages in India to telephone marriages in certain Muslim countries to common law, you know, common law relationships where people get to stay together for 15 years and never get married in Canada or elsewhere. 
that the, the practices after the marriage are also very different. And so when you talk about the threshold for walking out of an arranged marriage versus the threshold for walking out of a common law relationship or the threshold for walking out of a, of a marriage if, you've, uh, if you come from a different culture is very different. And whether or not you have to wait until those levels of abuse reach a certain level um, until the guy actually hits you. Most of my friends, female friends, male friends, when you talk about abuse, you're usually talking about women, would walk out of a relationship long before the guy actually hit her. And that's not true in all cultures. And that's not true in, in with everybody's experience in the world. And so I, I think that's a huge challenge for our system. Um, I don't know that there's going to be easy answers in terms of screening. Critics are taking issue with the way an in-custody death at Vancouver International Airport involving Canada Border Services is being handled. Lucia Vega Jimenez was taken into custody last month and transferred from a provincial correctional facility to a holding cell at YVR. The BC's coroner service says things started to go wrong the morning after, and the 42-year-old Mexican citizen was taken to Mount St. Joseph Hospital, where she died on December 28th. Right, so I have uh, three related uh news items all related to the same issue there's been a detention hunger strike in ontario there's 50 or 60 uh, long-term detainees uh, are currently on hunger strike uh, and have been for the past couple of weeks in lindsay jail and in another uh, correctional institution in ontario uh, immigration detainees in uh, much of canada are held in provincial jails there are two immigrate dedicated immigration holding centers for longer term detainees uh, and one for short very short term detainees uh, under the airport in Vancouver the other two are in uh, Ontario and Quebec there's been a response from uh, Minister Goodale but I wouldn't say a response but he uh, posted an op-ed uh, oddly enough on the on the Huffington Post blog which was uh, perhaps the, an odd choice of place to, to put an op-ed if you're a minister. I, I would expect that he could get his op-ed published wherever he wants. But in any event, he sets out a number of goals uh, with respect to immigration detention and uh, some of the things that they'd like to change uh, or some of the, the ideas that they have, but also provides a justification for the, the current situation where we have these long-term detainees. Um, and the other, the, the third point that I thought was interesting was a CBSA tender on uh, looking for alternatives to detention. And so there's a lot of discussion around what does uh, an alternative to detention look like. Uh, and so we have this, this tender uh, with a, a request where they're seeking industry, uh, feedback from the industry with respect to the management and provision of a risk management-based alternative to detention program, including community supervision, electronic monitoring, etc. So uh, I, I wanted to bring these, this issue forward and bring these three, three pieces forward. I think that uh, immigration detention is a, a live issue and has been uh, in Vancouver. It was a particularly live issue with the, the death of uh, Lucia Vega Jimenez uh, and the, the inquest that followed it. And uh, we see it back in the news again. Do you want to just touch briefly on why somebody would be detained? Uh, the in terms of the long-term detention there are basically three grounds for detention aside from brief detentions at the beginning for administrative grounds you're looking at either being detained for identity in other words they can't ascertain your identity you're going to be detained for as a flight risk in other words you won't show up for immigration proceedings or you're detained as a danger to the community that is a, in broad strokes are the three main grounds for detention uh, where we see the long-term detentions are where there are impediments to removal 
for one reason or another. So in other words, they can't remove the person back to their to the country of origin, uh, sometimes because they're not cooperating uh, or they're seen as not cooperating with uh, the removal or getting the documents. Uh, in other cases, it's the, the country on the other side that, that isn't cooperating or won't provide the necessary documents, but the current person continues to be seen as either a flight risk or a danger. Yeah, as soon as I saw the tender, I assumed they were talking about ankle bracelets. Among other things, I mean, there's a number of different ways that the criminal courts have for alternatives to detention that just simply don't exist on the immigration side. And I've, I've always been surprised at how, uh, how much lack of flexibility there is uh, on the immigration side, especially when you look at some of the concerns uh, and you look at the restrictions in the, the provincial jails on access to the internet, for example. Why would an immigration detainee not have access to the internet? A criminal detainee is being punished, and a lot of them are guilty of fraud and internet-related crimes, and there, there's good reasons, perhaps, not to have access to the internet in a, in a federal penitentiary or a provincial jail where people are serving sentences. People who are preparing refugee claims and, and are, are waiting to be released, not having access to the internet, for example, just seems like an odd situation. So why... Uh, I've always found it a very odd uh, thing. In, in fact, going to the immigration detention center in Laval, Quebec, was the reason that I went into immigration. I got involved in immigration in at all. I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer, uh, and I had no intention of becoming an immigration lawyer. And, uh, until you saw the conditions there? Until I saw the situation that people found themselves in. and uh, the, it's, it's a much more Kafkaesque system than uh, finding... There's a lot of protections in the criminal system that don't exist in the immigration system. It's an ongoing area with a lot of changes, too. You know, in Ontario, the Ontario Court of Appeal, I believe, uh, granted the ability of long-term detainees there to have access to habeas corpus. Um, meanwhile, actually, we can use this to introduce the case that uh, I wanted to discuss. We have a certified question out of Vancouver, where Justice Harrington certified the following question. Does the federal court have jurisdiction to usurp the jurisdiction of the Immigration Division of the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada to order the release of the detainee pursuant to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act by ordering that the detainee shall remain in detention until further court order? So this swings the other way where uh, the federal court here was had previously stayed the release of an individual who the Immigration and Refugee Board had ordered released. After the stay, it had gone back before the Immigration and Refugee Board, as they have to do every 30 days. There has to be a new detention review hearing. The Immigration and Refugee Board ordered that the person be released again, and the federal court uh, quashed that decision again and then certified this question basically in the federal court as they say, usurp the jurisdiction of the Immigration and Refugee Board. Um, why usurp? Why not just use prohibition? I think it's the same idea. Like they mentioned in the main case that they don't see how the Immigration and Refugee Board wouldn't be found in contempt of court if they say this person's a danger to the public, we order that this person not be released, um, would it be in contempt of court if the Immigration and Refugee Board then did it? On the other hand, the Immigration and Refugee Board actually hears from the detainee, whereas the federal court, it's all done through written submissions. Well, that's why they have the powers of habeas corpus, but they don't have the, I don't know what the Latin is for the, you know, reverse of the habeas corpus. Well, I, I, I think that the, yeah. the issue... <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> what is the new term? This is the, the, the 
a new term will be needed in, in, for when in, the courts deny people the right yeah, yeah, sounds good to, to have you, access you, to you, it here. You just put an A in front of the word and it negates it. So I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know what it is in Latin. A habeas corpus. Yeah. I mean, I think Justice Harrington is, is a bit, uh, um, in these decisions, isn't really taking responsibility for what the federal court and why there's a problem with the federal court and why the habeas corpus uh, jurisdiction was taken by the provincial courts in Ontario in the first place was because the federal court is such a clunky process and it's a long process and the the act is set up so that you get reviews every 30 days and that your situation 30 days from now is being reviewed at that time and so the idea that the federal court's going to just grant an, an open-ended stay and then go through a nine-month process that without expediting things um, we did a lot of these cases with the Sun Sea um, and the process was expedited the Sun to stay just, within uh, that was the boat that landed Six years ago, with a couple hundred Sri Lankans off the shore of Vancouver Island, or, or four hundred ninety-two, I believe. But the uh, in any event, the there were a lot of challenges to the release decisions of the board. Um, in terms of this certified question, I've uh, I, I was speaking with Robin uh, Bayer, the uh, counsel on this yesterday. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be going up to the Court of Appeal, um, and uh, the board has released twice. Uh, he's got two further release decisions uh, from the uh, immigration division uh, since the decision. So I went back, I think one member uh, uh, decided to detain and two have decided to release. Uh, so he's had okay. four, three or four release decisions at this point. Uh, I, I think that the federal court needs to be very uh, cautious in how it uses a power to stop the immigration division from reviewing detention decisions if the federal court isn't going to step in and actually and, hear uh, the people who and are uh, detained. Not just hear the people who are detained, but do it on an ongoing basis. Because if the federal court's going to go through its normal process and sit around for eight months yeah. while things get scheduled and, and leave gets heard and the rest of it, if you're going to expedite the process and you're talking about holding things off for two weeks, that's one thing versus if you're talking about uh, um, several months, yeah. uh, the federal court really needs to consider the intention of the legislature in setting up 30-day reviews. I think uh, it's also important to understand the court, the federal court anyway, it doesn't have plenary jurisdiction. It's, it's, a, it's a court that's circumscribed by its, by its statute. And so we got to be really careful when you start throwing around words like usurping jurisdiction, for example. The jurisdiction of the federal court is set out in the federal court's act. Um, there are some prerogative writs. There's some, you know, there's some tradition there. But, uh, you know, I, without studying that case more, I think uh, those are some uh, those are some big loaded terms that Justice Harrington throws around. But hey, I love Justice Harrington. I love it when he quotes Shakespeare. Did he quote Shakespeare in this decision? Titus Andronicus. Oh, I'd have to go back and, and, uh, and I don't not compassion him. I'd have to go back and read it. Yes, yeah. I think my favorite Justice Harrington was the uh, was the, the Kenny. Sorry, uh, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. That was a great. Uh, uh, I I think it, you told me about this case, or it was on your. It might have been on your Twitter, but I read that it was it was a great uh, description of uh, you know three card poker or three card. What's the line? No, he was at Texas Hold'em. He was. Uh, I yeah. think he was talking about Texas Hold'em, and he yeah. was uh, deciding whether or not, or, or was it three card Monty? I forget what it was. Yeah. It had to do with it with uh, an interpretation yeah. of. Uh, but it's a it's a, a line from a Kenny. I think Kenny Rogers song. Yeah. That uh, okay. And I think we'll conclude with just some 
quick stats that I found through an Access to Information Act. This is the Access to Information Act request. This is the percentage of applications that Immigration Canada received in 2014, which had a paid representative. The overall total was of the over 2 million applications that IRCC received in 2014, 14.8% had a paid representative. It was 36% for permanent residence applications, 15% for temporary residents, 57% for refugee claims, and 3% for other. And other is classified as ARCs, PR cards, rehabilitation, restoration, and TRPs. That's it. Should be higher. <laughs> hey guys, Stephen here again. Uh, the Justice Harrington decision that Peter and Raj were discussing was Cohen and Canada 2015 FC 1192. That's the neutral citation once again. Didn't um, at the time that we recorded the podcast, I'd heard of the decision. I'd vaguely recommend or remembered reading it. Couldn't remember the actual case that uh, Justice Harrington had the poker case. Cohen v. Canada involved a, the Canadian government declaring that a person was inadmissible for having uh, engaged in online gambling in Israel. And Justice Harrington ultimately set aside that decision. And after stating why the decision was unreasonable, he concluded at paragraph 22 of the decision by saying... Uh, in closing, as the gambler said, if you're going to play the game, boy, you better learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. Uh, end quote of Justice Harrington. And that was the case that uh, Peter and Raj were talking about. Once again, my name is Stephen Murens. I can be reached at steven dot m-e-u-r-r-e-n-s at l-a-r-l-e-e dot com. Peter can be reached at P-E-T-E-R at E-D-E-L-M-A-N. -A Sorry. Peter can be reached at P-E-T-E-R at E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N dot C-A. And Raj uh, Sharma, our guest today, can be reached at R-A-J at S-S-H-Law dot C-A. That's obviously S-S-H-L-A-W dot C-A. Thank you for listening. <laughs>